Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to turn in your Bible to the letter of Galatians. <clears throat> We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31 this morning. So Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in Galatians 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be Under the law, do not listen to the law. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman, and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So as Jonathan prayed, we need light. So let's pray again. Lord, we do thank you for all your word. What wonders there are in it. But we confess our our need. We confess that we see so many things dimly and that we need your help. We need light. We need the Spirit to come 
and illumine the eyes of our hearts that we might know the truths that you have written down for us. So come, grant him and give us light and joy in Jesus Christ. We prayed in his name. Amen. So in light of our text, uh, the significance of Jesus' words to Nicodemus is distinctly felt. It seems there's a whole Bible theology in the simple words, you must be born again. The regeneration, the new birth of the sinner's soul is central to the gospel of God. If you would enter His kingdom, it is necessary that you are born from above. It's necessary that you are born again. That new birth is the key to heaven. It's heaven's gracious will to come and live in you. That's why when you heard the gospel that one great time, though you may have heard it a thousand times before, this time, that one time, you believed on Jesus. And in that moment, you were saved. You were set free. But why did Jesus have to let someone like Nicodemus in on this? Because though it should have been plain to Nicodemus from the Bible, it wasn't. Because Nicodemus wasn't yet born again. Speaking spiritually, we might say Nicodemus was on the Hagar side of the Abrahamic line. He didn't know that, but that was the truth. He was a Jewish man. He must have been uh, rigorously observant of the Mosaic law. How else could he rise to be the teacher of Israel? Among that crowd, expositing the Scriptures before his more separatist, pharisaical peers, He had to have been, must have been, without peer in searching the Scriptures as if eternal life depended on his searching of the Scriptures. But as yet, the man himself had not yet come for life to the one those pages preached. And why not? It should have been so obvious. So why wasn't it so obvious? Because again, From birth and from Adam, Nicodemus existed in a spiritual darkness that binds all of us to believe I can justify myself before God. And but for grace, that God has told us differently, that it's only by grace and not by any of our works, that God has told us differently only aggravates our natural mind in the opposite or the opposing direction. We double and triple down by the day. I can be good enough. I can justify myself. And honestly, we as believers may not be as opposed to that temptation as we ought to be. What we're seeing in Galatians is a departure from grace that was settling in the Galatian 
churches. It was settling in amongst believers. They were beginning to believe like they believed when they were lost. Origins matter. Origins matter. And they've forgotten the import of theirs. What about you and me? Do we know what the Word teaches on inheriting the kingdom of God? How that comes about. Do we know? And do we prize the truth enough to preserve it from every single knockoff of man? That's our text this morning. And so let's come to it. And first up in Paul's thought is this. That Abraham had not one son, he actually had several, but two in particular. He had two sons with different origins. They were brothers from different mothers. And that made all the difference. And out of the gate then, Paul returns to a common theme in the letter of Galatians. Churches, he's saying, know better your Bibles. Know better your Bibles. He's writing to believers, again, giving serious consideration to the observance of things like circumcision and food laws and the Jewish holidays as justifying before God. That's what he's alluding to in our verse 21 by addressing them as those who desire to be what? Under the law. Again, under the law. Even though the law was purposefully impermanent and it's pointing us to Jesus, and even though Jesus had come and redeemed those who were under the law, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, leaving that covenant behind in the advance of redemptive history, still they desired to go back to what had passed away and anyway could never give us eternal life. To go back to a covenant not given to justify sinners. To go back to that for your very justification was not to strip Jesus of some of His glory. It was, if you remember this from chapter 2, verse 21, to cancel Him entirely. Jesus did all, or He did nothing. To say He did some, is to say he did none. And Paul saying that the Galatians are inclined that way, that they want to be under the law because they don't know the law. They don't know what the law says. They don't know the Bible well enough. So they're susceptible. Listen, dear ones, we cannot know our Bibles well enough. We need to learn as a church to love growing in biblical knowing. And just so, Paul refers them to the story in the Bible of Abraham's two sons. It's basically in Genesis 16 through Genesis 21. And he tells them again, The two sons had different mothers, and that the two mothers, the women, had different social statuses. 
So Ishmael was born to Abraham by Hagar, the slave woman. While Isaac was later born to Abraham by Sarah, the free woman. Verse 22. And then it's in verse 23 that Paul reveals this further defining distinction. Very important to the passage. He says this, The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born not according to the flesh, but through promise. Here's the situation in Genesis 16. Abraham and Sarah have grown impatient with God. God's made them a promise. They're going to have an heir, a son, a child, an offspring. Redemption for the world is going to come through him. He's made them a promise. They've become impatient. Though they've believed him and embraced his promise, hope deferred has made their hearts sick. Length of time has brought on a strong temptation, like a very strong temptation. Like so strong they do something that I could never imagine myself doing. They take matters into their own hands as if the promised heir leading to the serpent-crushing, curse-conquering Christ could ever be the product of mere human invention, intuition, or pragmatism. I am barren. We are old. God has kept me from bearing a child. So you know what? Now it's up to us. Against all faithfulness, not just to God, but to one another, she tells him, go in to my servant Hagar. Have her bear a child for me. And then we can get on with redeeming the world. We will provide the heir that God is not giving. And very sinfully, Abraham's like, that sounds like a good alternate plan to me. And that's the origin of Ishmael. And then sometime later, you have the birth of Isaac. This is how it's put in Genesis chapter 21, verse 1. The Lord then visited Sarah as he had said, because he's faithful to his word. As he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, because he's faithful to his promises. So Ishmael was born out of human sin and unbelief according to the flesh. And Isaac was born out of the grace and the faithfulness of God. Isaac was born through promise. God literally raised Sarah's womb from the dead, is what it says in Romans chapter 4. And He did this to show that the promise was and would always be received by the grace of God and never by the works of man. And true to that, it was Isaac and not Ishmael 
the miraculous son of the free woman and not the man-contrived son of the slave woman who carried on God's promises in Christ for everyone who would ever believe. Ishmael was a son of Abraham, but he was not the son of the promise. What Hagar bore to a doubting Abraham and Sarah was a son contrary to God's plan who neither would nor could inherit the Christ-centered promise with Isaac. If we can get spiritual about it now, it's as Jesus said to Nicodemus, What's born of the flesh is just flesh. While what's born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is spiritually alive to God. Moving us in the direction that Paul now takes it. We pick up it in verse 24, and Paul gives his interpretation of these birth stories in view, this is very important, in view of later biblical passages, which he then applies to the present situation in Galatia. You got all that? Okay. Summarily and spiritually, it's that origin matters for inheritance. Origin matters for inheritance. So he begins by relating Hagar and Sarah, these two women, these two mothers, verse 24, to two covenants. The Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. And you'll recall that one of those covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, is rooted in the grace of God. While the other, the Mosaic covenant, is conditioned. It is a conditional covenant. And fatally so, because it's conditioned on human obedience to God. Which really just means it's a covenant intending to lead us to the grace of God promised to Abraham. And you see in the verse 24 that Paul focuses first on the covenant that was cut at Sinai. That's the Mosaic covenant. And he relates that covenant to Hagar. Why? Because it only bore children for slavery. It could never set them free from sin or death or hell. It has no power to deliver on the promise of God to the world. Let me be clear, the Mosaic Law Covenant, conditioned as it was on the perfect obedience of awfully imperfect sinners like you and me, could never lead such people to eternal life. Far from raising the dead, it only signed our death certificates. Being under the law was never amenable to being blessed by God as God had promised. The blessing was always promised to the blood of Christ. 
and to faith in Christ, doing Moses set no one free. And now comes the astonishing application. Not only does Paul relate the Mosaic covenant with Hagar and not Sarah. Talk about, man, a real punch in the gut for the Judaizers. Mosaic covenants related to Hagar, not Sarah. He does the same thing in verse 25 with the Jerusalem of their day. He relates it to Hagar and not to Sarah. She speaking of the present Jerusalem, is in, what does he say? Slavery. With her children. Here's what he means. Anyone who truly believes that they can enter the kingdom, enter the promise, enter the blessing, enter the inheritance by works of the law and the power of flesh, those folks are still enslaved to the power of sin, death, and hell. You could be Nicodemus. Very much a child of Abraham, according to the flesh. But that does not mean you're a child of God, according to the Spirit. You may even be zealous for God, as Paul says they were in Romans chapter 10. But you seek to establish your own righteousness. Like that can be good enough to get into heaven. And you're unwilling to submit to the righteousness that God freely invites you to take from the Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing you're really establishing is that you are enslaved to a lie and that you need to be born from above. Heaven down. If justification were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. Is that what you believe? Is there even a hint of that among us as a church because it was spreading like wildfire through churches in Galatia? If there's even a hint among us, we've got to get rid of it, is what Paul's going to say. Anyone who makes our obedience to the law any basis of right standing with God has not listened to the law. Indeed, they're in danger of proving a child of spiritual slavery without any measure at all of heavenly inheritance. They're a child of the pride that believes God's not going to deliver on that promise. And it can be had by human might and human merit, Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. Now, let's praise the Lord that there's good news in verse 26. There is not one, but apparently there are two Jerusalems. In the end, the Jerusalem above 
will make its grandest appearance in Revelation 21. It's going to be coming down to us. But that doesn't stop her from making so many glorious cameos here and now. So contrary to the Hagar, Sinai, Ishmael, Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above, he says, is, verse 26, free. And then he looks at the Christians in Galatia, just like look at you right now and say, and she is our mother. Beloved, it is good to know your mom. And never forget her. In this sense, she is free from sin. She is free from death. Go read Revelation 21. She is free from hell. She is free from the lures of the devil. And as you're one of her children, as you have been born from above, born again, so too you are free from the power of the very same things. Church, we talk about the new birth. What we mean is, heaven enters us before we enter heaven. We're born from above before we rise above. We are set free indeed before we see freedom at last with our eyes. we got a foretaste of it. Now the question is, how has this glorious work of God in our souls, how has it come about? Paul finds a basis for this in his understanding of the Sarah-Hagar dynamic in Isaiah 54. Verse 1. Let me repeat. Paul reads Genesis 16 through 21 in light of Isaiah 54. Verse 1. Paul reads the Bible as revelation in progress so that a later text provides a deeper understanding of an earlier text. And I'm telling you this to say Paul's not engaging in some subjective and suspicious method of interpreting the Bible here. He's just reading the Bible fully. He's reading the Bible true to its entire scope and every single verse. Can I say it again? We cannot know our Bibles well enough. The gospel is at stake. So what of Isaiah 54 verse 1? It's a reference not to Hagar, but to Sarah. And relating Sarah not with Sinai, but with Zion, the Jerusalem above. Here's the verse. Rejoice, O barren one, Sarah, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, as Paul reads that verse, it would seem his mind runs 
to Sarah in relationship to the Jerusalem above. In the context of Isaiah, when he says, Sing, O barren one, he's picking up Sarah language and applying it to heaven. Both mothers, Sarah and heaven, have an immediate reason in the context of Isaiah to rejoice. Dear ones, what's written just before Isaiah 54, verse 1? Isaiah 53. If you're not familiar with Isaiah 53, hear it or hear it again. It's about the Christ of God, that suffering servant. It's about the Son who would be despised and rejected by men, wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, upon whom was the chastisement that brought us peace, by whose stripes we are healed. Though it's we who have gone astray, it says, the Lord laid on Him, not us, on Him, the iniquity of us all. That he was stricken, contrary to what we might think, for the transgression of God's people. And that though innocent, it was the will of the Lord to crush him as an offering for sin. So God's promised offspring was God's singular offering. That's Isaiah 53. And now listen in. It says, when this servant, makes his self-sacrificial offering, he shall see children. His offspring is what it says. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand as this servant makes many to be, these are Isaiah's words, not Paul's words, accounted righteous. Rising from the dead, his portion or his inheritance, it says, will be divided among his children because he has made intercession for them. And the very next line is Isaiah 54, verse 1. Sing! Rejoice, O barren one! Why? Well, for Sarah, it's that out of barrenness, and therefore by the omnipotent grace of God, the promised Redeemer would come to redeem, of which Isaac was but a type, and pledge. God's promise could not fail. The Abrahamic covenant would be fulfilled in Christ. And all those children, more than the stars in the sky above, would be born again as heirs with Jesus. To say it another way, The saving work of heaven in the soul 
promised through Sarah would be achieved by Christ. And being achieved, heaven herself would be filled with children. Not according to the flesh, but according to promise. Not by human labors, but by the grace of God. Not by a gravely mistaken view of Moses, but by a living faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, which Moses in the law also preached to every soul he could. I think the commentator gets it right who said this. If the barrenness of Sarah and or the New Jerusalem, if their barrenness extends until, Isaiah 53, the resurrection of Jesus, what that means is the law, the Mosaic law covenant, has given Sarah zero children. And in this way then, Paul reinforces in the strongest possible terms that life, eschatological, eternal life, is not to be found by the law. And that to reject the testimony of Jesus' resurrection, which preaches to us, His work is sufficient for all who believe, is to disinherit yourself from heaven. The rightful heirs, this person says, of the Abrahamic covenant as fulfilled in Christ are Christians, believers in Jesus, full stop. And with Isaiah 54, verse 3, this actually expands the coverage of God's children beyond the borders of ethnic Israel to encompass you and me. All the nations is what it says. So whatever your earthly parentage or your prior spiritual heritage and or baggage, Jerusalem above is entered not by works of the law, but solely through faith in the Redeemer's blood. Isaiah 53. Paul's point is origin matters for inheritance. As you've been born again and placed your soul in the care of Jesus Christ, what cause you have to sing and to rejoice? You're a child of God. You're an heir with Christ. You're free from the power and the penalty of sin and death and hell and all that used to enslave you. So, the question is, why would we ever run back to Hagar over Sarah? Why would we go back to Moses over Jesus? Why would we go back to the methods of men over the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Paul now comes to his main charge. 
picking up in verse 28. It goes something like this. Promote the line of promise. Promote it by preserving it. Or we might just say this. Stay true to the gospel of sovereign grace. But let's see how Paul works us through it. Let's continue to appreciate how Paul evens the scales of truth in love. Every reproof has its corresponding charity. This is what he's told them so far. (laughs) You aren't listening faithfully to the Word of God as you ought to, Christians. But, Verse 28, you church, like Isaac, you are yet children of promise. You hear that? You're not not understanding the Bible like you should, but you're children of promise. And as that's true, you have something to expect, And you have something you need to execute as a people. What you can expect, verse 29, is that those born of the flesh will persecute those born of the Spirit. As it was with Ishmael and Isaac, so also always. He was referring here to Genesis 21, verse 9. They're celebrating Isaac. He's been weaned. It's a milestone for the son of promise. And Ishmael appears to despise this. And he begins to laugh and to mock at his brother. He is the older brother, Ishmael. But he's not the son of promise. And he knows that and he makes his feelings known on the matter. And in the next verse, Genesis 21, verse 10, Sarah, seeing Ishmael make fun, or whatever he's doing, despising Isaac, seeing it, she says to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. And Abraham didn't like that. You can go read it. He was not fond of that suggestion. However, God, having made other plans for Ishmael, He agrees with Sarah. Whatever Sarah says to you, He tells Abraham, do it. Why? Because... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. You think God's able to see Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 54 long before Isaiah's in this world? Oh, he can't. In effect, God's saying, spare Isaac, Ishmael's lot, Ishmael's sin, Ishmael's disdain. And that's why Paul fronts it the way he does in our verse 30. If you look there, 
Notice, it's not how does Sarah respond to this? How does Sarah deal with Ishmael's disdain for Isaac? That's not how Paul puts it. He puts it this way. What does Scripture say? How does God handle this? How would the Word of God have us respond to persecution? Before we answer that, let's understand the arena of this persecution here. It is persecution within the family. It's persecution within the family, but a very split family. Again, Ishmael and Isaac are both sons of Abraham, but they're brothers from different mothers. Ishmael was born through human attempts to hijack what could only be delivered by God's grace. And soon as he despised what has been graciously delivered, namely Isaac, Sarah, and God are in agreement, there now needs to be a separation within this family. The only heir of God's promise was the heir God had promised and specially delivered as representative of Christ and all His children. Now, what does that have to do with the churches in Galatia? What does that have to do with our church today? Maybe this. Persecution is not always so obviously red in tooth and claw. Maybe even the majority of the time, persecution is read in heart and doctrine. Why don't you look again with me at Galatians 4, verse 17. I love that all your heads just went down. I love that. To the text. Okay. The false teachers. See that? The false teachers make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them, which is weird that they would do that. Paul saying that those who, beginning of Galatians 2, slip in among you to spy out your freedom in Christ who want you to submit again, Galatians 5, to a cloaked yoke of slavery to Moses, who want to effectively shut you out from the blessings of the gospel, they're like Ishmael. Despising the new birth, despising the sufficiency of the cross, despising the fullness of faith, despising the work of the Spirit, they are in a sense, but really, persecuting the church. They are showing they have no inheritance in Christ. Not in part, not at all. And as in holding fast to the gospel, you let them know it. You let them know there is a great chasm between what you believe and what we believe. They're going to try with all their might to convince you otherwise. And if they won't do it by torching you at the stake, they'll do it by teaching you false gospels. As 
as verse 31, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. We can expect that. And we've got to do something about it. Paul's not saying anything different here than he did in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. If anyone, any person, any angel, even me, if anyone comes in among this family preaching against the saving grace of God, let them be accursed. Cast them out before they shut you out. They're not part of God's family, the Jerusalem above, yet. And they're showing that. Instead, promote the line of promise by preserving it. And to anyone who hears that and thinks that harsh, which I get, remember, In Genesis, God agreed with Sarah. God agrees with Paul. How many have missed out on heaven because the church refused to stay true to the gospel? How many have gone to hell because the church refused to draw a line around the family. That's so many churches today. How many, because the children of God exchanged the way to God, the way to God with the ways of the world. They catered to the flesh, they gave up the Holy Ghost, and they submitted to slavery again. Church, understand this. Casting out whatever is promoting a false gospel. Casting out whatever is obscuring the true gospel is a kindness, however hard, is a kindness to all who would be saved. Clarifying the house only builds the house. Where losing the gospel will destroy it. Ishmael is cast out that it might be clear to all the world of sinners, this is how you get in. Ishmael is cast out that Nicodemus and the Samaritan harlot in John 4 might see this is how to enter heaven. And it's not Ishmael's way. It's not Hagar. It's not Abraham and Sarah putting their heads together. We can come up with something to make this thing work. It's just by the gospel.
of Christ. Friends, it's not by works of the law. It's not by the merit of your works. It's not by the power of your flesh. It's just through faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you have not yet believed on Him, won't you repent of your sin right now, including your self-righteousness, and believe upon Him? If you do that, heaven will receive you. And you will never be cast out from that. And as that's true of us, church, this morning, what cause we have to know the word of truth, to preserve the gospel of Christ, and to rejoice in that gospel. The Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Let God have all His glory for His amazing grace. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we leave it to You now. Your Word is living and active. Cause every soul to know the heavenly, dynamic activity of that Word right now. For our joy, for Your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.